Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. This is Reformation Sunday, which is the Sunday closest to October 31st each year. October 31st is the day that Martin Luther nailed to the door. Where is that? Is that at the back somewhere? Would you start it up from the back? We're passing around a copy of a facsimile of the 95 theses, so it'll come to you at some point in the service. And I'm glad you were systematic in taking it the whole way over there so that we can... Isaiah. Hey, nice glasses. I've got some glasses like that. So anyhow, you can pass this around. You'll notice that it's in Latin. You'll also notice that only what? Ron, is it 85 or 83 of the 95 are there? 87. So they didn't get them quite onto one page. So how many years ago? 499. What does that mean we get to do a year from now? We get to celebrate the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing these theses. Now, when I say theses, you don't think what you should think. Because you don't think argument points, debate points. You know, we sort of go into la-la land when we read scripture and when we hear historic things, and we don't get the feeling for it. But you have to realize these are 95 arguments that Martin Luther wanted to have with the Pope. 95 points he wanted to argue with the Pope. 95. A lot of you young men can't handle one argument. You think that your, your, your chest is going to cave in if, if somebody tells you that they disagree with you. Well, back then, truth mattered. Truth mattered more than relationships. Or a better way of saying it is, there is no relationship with God that is not based on truth. And so what Luther saw, as many had seen before him, was that people were being peeled off from God and from true Christian faith by the manipulations and the, uh, the mercantile interests of the Pope. Now, I want to read 20 of them, okay? So I've gone through, and I'll tell you which number I'm reading, but I want you to listen to these arguing points because listening to them we get a feel for what the church was at the time because you don't put something down as an arguing point unless the church disagrees with you. So listen to them. Number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. When our Lord Jesus, Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Number two, the word 
the word repentance, cannot be properly understood as referring to the sacrament of penance. In other words, confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. In other words, repentance is not something that you jigger and then rejigger through the agency of me, of the priest, of, of the sacraments. Number three, yet its meaning, what meaning? The meaning of repentance. Yet the meaning of repentance is not restricted to repentance in your heart. For such repentance is null. In other words, it's nothing. Unless it produces outward signs in various mortifications of the flesh. In other words, repentance isn't real unless there's fruit. Remember what John the Baptist said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And that fruit is referred to here by Luther as mortifications of the flesh, mortally wounded, in other words, specific acts of death of our flesh. Number 13, death puts an end to all the claims of the church. Even the dying are already dead to the canon laws and are no longer bound by them. And so this is the point where he disagreed with the church. Once we die, we're not subject to the canon laws and the apparatus of the Pope. Number 27, there is no divine authority for preaching that the soul flies out of the purgatory immediately the money clinks in the bottom of the chest. Now, why would you put that in? You put it in because that's what the church teaches. The church teaches what? that the soul flies out of the purgatory immediately when the money clinks in the bottom of the chest. And he says there's no divine authority for preaching. So in other words, they were not just teaching, they were not just selling, marketing, but they were preaching this. You put your money into the chest and your loved ones, your mother, your father, your grandmother, your child, your dead child, their soul will spring out of purgatory, which is a state in between life and and heaven and hell. Number 28, it is certainly possible, now Luther has his tongue in his cheek here, all right, it is certainly possible that when the money clinks in the bottom of the chest, avarice and greed increase, but when the church offers intercession, all depends in the will of God. Notice how he's consistently decreasing and denying the agency of the church, and specifically its, its, its uh, peddler agency in salvation. Number 32, all those who believe themselves certain of their own salvation, all those who believe themselves certain of their own salvation by means of letters of indulgence will be eternally damned together with their teachers. So if you think that you're going to heaven, you're certain you're going to heaven because you have a letter of indulgence from the Pope, you're damned and so is the person that taught you that you could trust in that. Number 50. Christians should be taught that if the Pope knew the exactions of the indulgence preachers, in other words, uh, as a Christian, you should be taught that if the Pope was aware of what you were being put through by the people selling indulgences and preaching them, he would rather the church of St. Peter were reduced to ashes than be built with the skin, flesh, and bones of the sheep. 
Now, that one strikes me to be quite a bit um, aspirational. Uh, sort of like, one would hope this is what the Pope, you know, in other words, I'm not sure he's being completely sincere in saying that the Pope would, you know what I'm saying. Then number 51, Christians should be taught that the Pope would be willing as he ought if necessity should arise. Well, there you have a clue, you know, he should be. Christians should be taught that the Pope would be willing, as he ought, if necessity should arise, to sell the church of St. Peter and give to his own money to many of those whom the pardon merchants conjure money. The Pope should be willing to sell Michelangelo's, the Sistine, St. He should, be, he should be willing to sell the Vatican and then use his own money to buy the salvation that you're trying to earn. Okay? Number 54, the word of God suffers injury if in the same sermon an equal or longer time is devoted to indulgences and to the word. And so when they preached, they would use their preaching time to sell indulgences. And Luther says we should at least have parity. Number 55, the Pope cannot help taking the view that if, <laughs> and again, it's aspirational, you know, the, he really knows what the Pope thinks and feels, right? <laughs> he says the Pope can't help but believe, take the view, that if indulgences, which are very small matters, are celebrated by one bell, one pageant, or one ceremony, the gospel, a very large matter, should be preached to the accompaniment of a hundred bells, a hundred processions, and a hundred ceremonies. Number 60, we do not speak rashly. Rashly means um, without forethought, without consideration, hyperbolically. We're not, we're not, you know, letting off steam when we say that the treasures of the church are the keys of the church and are bestowed by the merits of Christ. Number 62, the true treasure of the church is the holy gospel of the glory and the grace of God. Now think, there's a church where this is an arguing point. Think about that. Number 63, it is right to regard this treasure as most odious. In other words, it's right to look at this treasure as stinking to high heaven. And you think, what? But listen to the end. For it makes the first to be the last. In other words, it takes the rich, the educated Americans, and it makes them the last. So Luther is speaking what? He's saying the opposite of what he means. It's being ironic. All right? Number 66, the treasures of the indulgences are the nets today. So the indulgences are the treasures that catch the nets 
which they used to fish for men of wealth. I mean, people, put yourself in the time. Is Martin Luther uh, now speaking to please? Remember how Paul says that in Galatians? Now am I trying to please? You know, now am I trying to get an audience? You know, is Luther now trying to get an audience? But within two weeks, these, these theses had gone all across Germany, and within two months, they were all across Europe. So who was reading them? Well, you know that the, uh, the rich and the powerful were reading them and gnashing their teeth, right? But you also know that all the little people that had mortgaged their homes to save their children in purgatory or limbo, I should say. Then he says this, number 86, again, since the Pope's income today is larger than that of the wealthiest of wealthy men, why doesn't he build his, this church of St. Peter with his own money? Rather than with the money of indigent believers. Poor believers. And then I'm going to read the last four, 92 to 95. Away then with those prophets who say to Christ's people, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Hail, hail to those prophets who say to Christ's people, the cross, the cross, where there is no cross. Christians should be exhorted to be zealous to follow Christ, their head, through penalties, deaths, and hells, and let them thus be more confident of entering heaven than through many through many tribulations rather than through a false assurance of peace. And so those are 20 of the 95 theses. Our, word, our scripture, our word from God this morning is found in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so here we see the great statement of justification by faith alone, which was the center of the Reformation. And it is the center of the book of Galatians, it's the center of Romans, it's the center of Acts 15, where they record the controversy. They give us the history of the controversy in Antioch, which sent the men down to Jerusalem, to the Jerusalem Council, you remember. And back then the issue was circumcision. And so we've seen recently, Jody preached last week about the covenant that God made and the blood of the covenant, the bodies, and then we look at Abram being told to circumcise his sons, right, and the, and, and the males of his household, and we see this Old Testament mark that identified the people of God, and that mark was circumcision. And so when you come into the New Covenant, what you see is that baptism replaces circumcision 
And yet, nevertheless, don't ever forget that circumcision was the Old Testament sacrament of initiation. It was the physical way that God marked the people of God. All right, they were circumcised. And so the Apostle Paul begins this statement, or begins this text by saying, we, and so it's the first person plural, we, he, he includes himself, are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. So he's including himself with those who historically had a claim to be the people of God. So in a way of speaking, he's saying, look, I'm circumcised. All right? I'm circumcised. I'm not dirty. I'm not a Gentile. I'm not goyim. I'm a member of the people of God. <coughs> he says, we. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. And the Apostle Paul repeats this a number of places where he talks about his inheritance, his pedigree, if you would. I've been reading this book on being a shepherd in, in, the, uh, in the Lake District in uh, north, <coughs> northwestern <coughs> England, right under Scotland, Carlisle, where the Dalbs are. And an awful lot of the book on being a shepherd is about the pedigree of, of the sheep. Who their mother was, who their dad was, how many generations back they go, who they got them from, what ribbons, what awards they take in the shows for the animals, right? 4-H is somewhat like that now. Um, but in Ephesians 2, verses 11 and 12, we, we read this. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. <laughs> and so what you're dealing with here, people, is you're dealing with the same issue you deal with all the time, which is the pecking order. You know, you think it's just for like chickens in the coop, but it's not. It's the way we are. You know, where's your passport from? Well, I have a passport from Algeria. You know, my passport is from Mozambique. Well, actually, it's not Mozambique. It's Zimbabwe, right? Where's your passport? <clears throat> I am a Roman citizen, and I was born a Roman citizen. I didn't buy it. Remember how Paul said that? That was in a one-upmanship of the Apostle Paul related to passports. I am a natural-born Roman. I didn't get my green card. Then there are people that have green cards, and then there's undocumented. Now, translated into the religious sphere, into the spiritual sphere. And all of a sudden, what you have is the Hispanic black white thing of, of like Watts of LA, you know? The Koreans, they own all the stores, and there's a riot, and the Koreans own the stores, and the blacks hate the Koreans, right? But no, 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 no. You don't know about any of this, do you? And so you've got the east side of Bloomington, the west side of Bloomington, right? West side of Bloomington, hate to break it to us, we're the goyim, right? East side of Bloomington, all the crimes are white collar. Everywhere you go, every classroom, 
every daycare center, every church. As a matter of fact, the work of churches, as a matter of fact, the work of denominations is to separate Christians into the dirty Christians and the clean Christians, right? Yeah, you didn't know this? Yeah. Churches do this. You tell people where you go to church, and that tells them whether you're clean or dirty. And you say, oh, no, 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 that's not what you do. I say, okay. So somebody tells you that they're from First Presbyterian Church, and you say, what Presbyterian is that? And they say, well, PCUSA. And if you have been in conservative circles for a day, you know that means dirty. Right? Don't we all know this? Come on, admit it. You know, there's the Wesleyans and the Nazarenes, and then there's the United Methodist, right? And the Nazarenes and the, and the Wesleyans know that the United... Or in the Dutch community, there is the Christian Reformed Church, and the RCA, the Reformed Church of America, and then the URC. And the URC exists to say that the CREC is dirty, and the CREC used to exist to say that the RCA was dirty. Now, when I say dirty, I don't mean that they think that, although with the Dutch, <laughs> you know, it might actually be a matter of washing your hands with the Dutch. They're the cleanest people the world has ever seen. You all know that, right? You go through a Dutch community and every blade of grass, you know, every sidewalk is edged. If, if I live in heaven, I want to live in the Dutch neighborhood. <laughs> My son-in-law laughs. <laughs> yeah. Listen, there's always pecking orders when people get together. Always. And when it comes to religion, we have pecking orders. When it comes to race, we have pecking orders. When it comes to nationality, when it comes to male and female, even within the black community, there are pecking orders. Right? In the black community... Depending on where you are and where you live, there is a pecking order that's based on skin color, right? If you didn't know this, I hate to break it to you. I had a friend. All of a sudden, I found out he was beating his wife. I asked her why. We were, we were close to them. Found out she said it's because she could pass and he couldn't. You go to South Africa. How are Indians looked on in South Africa? All across it. Africa, really. Now, translate this back into Galatia. Galatia's partly modern-day Afghanistan, partly modern-day Turkey. It's an area, all right? And in that area are those who have come to Christ as Gentiles and those who have come to Christ through what? Through the clean. The clean, which is the Jew, which is circumcised. So now listen to this again. This is what the Apostle Paul says. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, so he's talking to the going, he's talking to the dirty, all right, who were called uncircumcision. So the Jews would go around saying, they're the uncircumcised. What an incredibly demeaning thing to have label you. You know, how would you like to be referred to by a whole class of people as the uncircumcised? I mean, come on, people, think. Are you with me? It's demeaning. And he says, you who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. 
So you are called the unclean by the so-called clean, are you with me, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And then you listen to the Apostle Paul, that's in Ephesians, then you listen to him saying here in Galatians 2, we, we, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles, not goyim, not uncircumcised, not dirty. My problem when I preach is that as I'm preaching, I, I live in your brains. And I think, you know, we hear this stuff and we just don't buy into it. We're just absolutely convinced that we would have been there helping Luther to nail the theses to the door. We're absolutely certain that we would have been on the side of the angels in Antioch, that we would have been one of the ones that said, no, they shouldn't be oppressed they shouldn't have to be circumcised. We're sure that we would have been sitting on the side of the Gentiles when the Apostle Peter moved over to be on the side of the Jews and the church potlucks. We're sure we would have applauded the Apostle Paul when he resisted Peter to his face. And we're sure today that we trust in Jesus Christ alone and not in the works of the law. We're convinced we're on the side of the angels in every one of the controversies that started and ended prior to us coming on the scene. Of course, we have the benefit of hindsight, which is 2020, and to the victor belongs the privilege, chief among which is writing the history. And so the Apostle Paul does a lot of writing, and so he won. And so because we're in churches that say that his writings are inspired by the Holy Spirit, all of us know that we would never have looked down our noses on the Gentiles. We wouldn't have done that. Now, we're Gentiles, all of us except Bob. Maybe there's another Jew here. Isn't there somebody that has partial? No, Wayne, Wayne is a quarter Cherokee Indian. He's not Jewish. <laughs> other than that, I think we're all pretty... Huh? What, Cherokee? That was a joke. I, I, not in the wildest stretch of my imagination that I think David Canfield had any Cherokee. Cherokee people! Oh, you do? Okay, he's got that in his wife. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. And so what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's walking into the middle of a division, a pecking order, a racial, ethnic, dirty, clean, and he says, moi, me, we, we are clean. We are Jews. We are circumcised. And then he says this, nevertheless, Okay, I'm over here with you. You can't claim anything that I can't claim, okay? Nevertheless, and so you know if you're a Jew that you have it coming now because he says nevertheless. So it must be what's to come must be depreciating 
what he says he shares with you. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, I'm circumcised with you. I'm a Jew with you. I'm not dirty. I'm not goyim. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, if he's saying a man isn't justified by works of the law, there must be some works of the law that somebody's saying you're justified by. And so what are the works of the law that people are saying you're justified by? Otherwise, why is he fighting? Why is he arguing? If there are no works of the law that people think they're justified by, what's he making such a big deal about? So it would be reasonable for us to ask, what were the works of the law that they thought they were justified on the basis of? Right? I mean, don't you want to know that? If we need to know... Those of us who are clean today, if we need to know that there are works of the law that we might be in danger of thinking we're justified by, we would want to know what were the works of the law back then that they thought they were justified by. And of course, we all know what the answer is. They were fighting over whether or not they had to be circumcised. So the work of the law, the principal one that the book of Galatians has written against you getting salvation through is what? Circumcision. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, okay, I'm circumcised, I'm a Jew, I'm clean, with you. Nevertheless, we know that nobody's saved by the works of the law. Nobody's saved. Now, at this point, people get real weasley. And people say, well, okay, but the reason that they weren't justified by works of the law is that God had changed the way the law worked. From the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, God had rejiggered it so that it needed to be a different work of the law that you trusted in now than the work of the law that you trusted in then. So really, it's a work of the law now, but back then, it, it well, I mean, he's saying not by any works of the law, but really, you know, it's because circumcision was replaced by baptism. And so now you're saved by baptism. And it's not a work of the law, it's a work of grace. Back then, it was physical. It was like body stuff. But now, baptism isn't physical body stuff. Baptism is like, it's like faith. If you believe, you shouldn't be baptized until you believe because it's now a spiritual thing, really. Whereas then, it was a physical thing, really. Back then, it brought you into the nation of Israel and you got the land and everything's like real concrete because people back then were stupid. And they needed like sort of concrete things. But now we're spiritual Worship God in the spirit and truth. And so now it's, it's like, it's like, now we have so much more in Christ. Now we, now we see the spiritual reality, because the Old Testament was, 
was so kind of, you know, like physical and fleshly. I mean, people back then were stupid. And so God had to lower himself to them. And so he did things like circumcision in the land, you know, and, and children back then. Children were really important. Now we worship God in spirit and in truth. And we're so superior to them. You know, we've evolved. We've progressed. You know, we've had good Bible teachers. And so we're not in danger of ever putting our trust in the works of the law today. I mean, you have to get down. Now I'm being facetious. Okay, I'll raise my hand. This shows that I'm sort of teasing you, all right? And so you have to understand that back then, God worked through physical things. Now he works through spiritual things. Back then it was circumcision. Now it's faith. And so that's why nobody's saved by works of the law anymore. And so we know we're not saved by works of the law anymore. We don't require people to be circumcised anymore. We call them to faith in Jesus Christ. And so there's nothing that we're in danger of trusting in other than Jesus today. We live by faith. So you ask a normal Bible-believing Christian in America today, how are you saved? And they'll tell you, well, I'm saved. What? Well, if you get down to it, I'm saved because I prayed the sinner's prayer. I'm saved because I told Jesus that I wanted him to take over the throne of my life. I'm saved because I have faith in Jesus. And it sounds pretty good. How do you, how do you define faith as a work of the law? You know, it's pretty hard, right? And so people say, I have faith. And you say, well, how do you know you have faith? And they say, well, because I prayed the sinner's prayer. They say, well, how do you know that saves you? And they say, well, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that shall be saved out of the house. They say, there's no other name given among men whereby you must be saved. And so people will come out with the right things. But then let's say that you have a prayer of confession in your worship service at the very beginning. And in the prayer of confession, the pastor or the elder leads you to confess your sin. And you come in, and you're not a rebel at heart, and so you accept that as being what they do. And who knows why they do it, but, you know, I mean, we are all sinners after all, right? Right? I mean, come on. Come on. You're a sinner, right? Come on, come on. Speak to me. Yeah, yeah, you're sinners, right? But then after a while you begin to realize that that's kind of like negative karma. It's like, what? what? The church I grew up in didn't have a confession of faith or or a confession of sin at the beginning. What's with this confession stuff? I did that when I came to Jesus. And they say, so, like, at the beginning of worship, shouldn't we repent? Well, yeah, but, I mean, you don't want to get into a guilt-tripping thing here because that shows you don't have faith. I say, oh, really? So that's what faith is. Faith is not allowing any negative karma into your brain because you're in Jesus. 
Is that what faith is? So faith works very well by keeping you from having to depend on Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. You just don't let any negative karma in. You don't allow yourself to be convinced of sin. You don't sit under the law. You don't read scripture. You don't allow your wife to speak to you. Because it's negative karma. And how are we going to be saved if we don't have faith? And how are we going to have faith if somebody's always guilt-tripping me? And so really, the life of faith in the evangelical church becomes a life without Jesus. I mean, there's lots of talk about Jesus, you understand. But Jesus clinging to him because the waves are 200 miles an hour wind-driven. They're 20-story building high. But, you know, you just come out with all this gunk. You say, oh, victory in Jesus. Victory in Jesus. And I trust Jesus. And I know that because I had an idea what I wanted and what happened was actually different, I know I can just trust Jesus. And it don't even bother me. I'm not bothered. Because I'm saved by faith. My faith is impervious to the normal wounds and sins and depressions and nightmares of people who don't have victory in Jesus. And so what happens in America is Christians are like completely, um, what's the word, like vacuous, like, like superficial, like... They don't have the normal passions of life because they better get that faith right because that faith is what saves them. And so, if you've been led to Christ by a campus parachurch group and you get done praying the sinner's prayer, walking through the four spiritual laws, when you get to the end and you say, but how do I know that I'm saved? They say, oh, here's the promise of Scripture. And you go, yeah, but I don't feel. And they say, oh, don't trust your feelings. This is the promise of Scripture. And you go, okay, promise of Scripture, promise of Scripture, promise of Scripture, promise of Scripture. But I don't feel, don't forget your feelings. You're saved by faith. You're not saved by any works of the law. Scripture has said it, and that settles it. And you go, okay, okay, okay. I'm, I'm saved by faith, 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 saved by faith. And then you come to a prayer of confession. You go, Lord, I hate my sin. Wait, wait, wait. Victory in Jesus. Saved by faith. Saved by faith. Yeah, but on the way to church this morning, <laughs> I was pretty nasty to my wife. Saved by faith. Saved by faith. You see? Listen. Here's the truth. The work of the law in the evangelical world today is faith. It's faith. Faith is the thing you must do if you're going to be saved. And if you ever have any doubt, you say to yourself, I believe, I believe, I believe, I have faith, I have faith, I have faith. And that makes everything all right. Because the Bible says that we're not saved by works lest any man should boast. The Bible says we're saved by faith. Through grace. By faith. 
And so we work our faith, don't we? You ever have any doubts? And you just remind yourself, I'm saved by faith. And so you work harder at your faith. And so faith today is the work of the law. Now I know it seems crazy. But that's how sophisticated Satan is. Yeah, you've got it. It's not circumcision. We don't have a Judaizer movement in this church. Okay? I don't even know who is and isn't circumcised. I don't want to know. But I mean, think in Galatia, the church in Galatia, this was the issue. So I'm not just making a joke. But boy, here we know who lives in a victorious Christian life and and who has doubts about their salvation. And isn't that today how we separate the clean and the dirty? Which of us wants to sit and cry with those who cry? Which of us wants to teach the fear of God to our children? Which of us wants to think about the true condition of the soul of our brothers and sisters and our mothers and fathers? There is never any end to our desire to wean ourselves away from simple dependence upon the blood of Jesus Christ. And you say, oh, no, no, no. Those are my favorite hymns. And I say to you, sure they're your favorite hymns because you've got to... Faith, 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 faith. You know, they work well along with faith, faith, faith. I often think of, of this, this view of how we're saved as, as being like, you know, the, 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 you know, like... like you know, the Eastern mystical Om, Om. If you can just keep that going until the moment you die, you're saved. That Om of faith. Don't let any doubts come to you. Don't test it by any fruit of the Spirit. Don't question it. Don't go to a church that has a prayer of confession. Don't ever allow yourself to sit under a sermon that convicts you of sin. Because that's negative karma. And you're working so hard to keep your faith that you can't allow anybody to call you to repentance and to clinging to Jesus Christ. Remember the first of the 95 theses? When our Lord Jesus said that we are to repent, he was teaching us what? That the life of a Christian is a life of repentance. And yet in the evangelical world today, there is no preaching of repentance. And if you were to ask pastors and elders why, they would tell you because that's negative karma. But of course, they're not old hippies. So they wouldn't say it's negative karma. What they would say is because people need to live by grace. So they'd use grace. And they'd say that grace is in opposition to repentance. Now they wouldn't come out and say that. You know, if you go to preachers and never preach repentance, you say, why don't you preach repentance? They wouldn't say, well, because repentance whoops up on grace. And we can't have that. Grace is supreme. And yet was it not the law 
that was to be our schoolmaster to Christ? Was it not the law that was to reduce us to finally despairing of ourselves? <laughs> finally despairing of ourselves. Is it not the preaching of the law that causes us to cling to Christ? Is it not repentance that is the gift of the Holy Spirit that leaves us with nothing but faith, nothing but Jesus? You see, faith always has an object. Faith can't save you. And if the object of your faith is peanut butter and jelly sandwich, it will do nothing for you. Faith is only the tool, the means, by which you throw yourself on Christ. So if you don't feel any need to throw yourself on Christ because you have faith, do you see this? If you have no despair over your sin, if you cannot mirror what the Apostle Paul said at the end of his ministry, that he is the chief of sinners, if you think that the older you get, the less convicted of sin you'll get, because you're being sanctified, and as you grow in holiness, you're convicted of sin less, then your faith is the work of the law that you trust in. Do you see this? And it's really vacuous. It's meaningless. Listen, if you want to know whether a Christian is really a Christian in terms of their faith being in Christ or their faith being in faith, you know how to find out? Watch them when they're with somebody who's suffering. Watch them when they're with somebody who's suffering. If your spirituality and your doctrine has caused you, as you get older, to have less compassion and less sympathy and fewer prayers, how can that be you clinging to Jesus Christ? And yet you look at the church today, where is the fear of God? Where in your heart is the fear of God? What we're taught today is that you got to take care of yourself. You got to take care of yourself. We had a man probably 13, nah, probably 16 years ago who came to church here. <clears throat> And he, he had gone to Taylor University. He was evangelical pedigree, you know, just the perfect evangelical Christian, conservative, Bible-believing, evangelical Christian. And when he and his family first came in this church, they loved everybody, and everybody loved them. It was sweet. But after he'd been here, I'd say maybe six, year, six months to a year, He woke up, and he woke up to the fact that all of a sudden, his conscience would be burdened during the worship of a holy God. And he could not bring that into his experience of church and Christianity before. You know, because he had always been led to believe that Christians were sort of superficial blabbermouths 
and that they blabbed their mouth in a certain direction with certain vocabulary, but, you know, that life was basically, you know, cheerful. And he was cheerful. And so he thought about it, and he thought, what are those confessions of sin at the beginning of the service? Why, why do they do that? Why do they have a confession of sin at the beginning of a service? Why? How come? That's not right. We're not supposed to be burdened by our sins. We're supposed to live in grace. It began to burn in him a little bit and And the more he thought about it, the more he thought, you know, this isn't right. We're supposed to have victory in Jesus. We're supposed to have grace. We're supposed to have faith. We're not supposed to be burdened by our sins. Jesus paid it all. There's nothing we can do to add to it. And so we can't have confessions of sin because there's nothing we can do. There's nothing you can add to it. Think about this. We can't have confessions of sin Because there's nothing you can do, nothing you can add to it. Now, ask yourself this question. In what way is a confession of sin a contradiction of trusting in Jesus Christ and faith? There's no contradiction. What on earth is Jesus for if he's not for our sin? How does our sin, our awareness of our sin, cause us to reject the grace of Jesus Christ? But to him, a confession of sin was a rejection of the grace of Jesus. It was not just a rejection. It was an outright denial of the grace of Jesus Christ. So now let me ask you, was that man's faith in Jesus Christ? Come on. Come on. It wasn't faith in Jesus Christ. Am I saying he wasn't a Christian? Look, we all (laughs) are works in progress. I have absolutely no clue... That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a man who says you can't confess sin and believe in grace. You can't confess sin and live by faith. And I'm telling you, that's a lie from hell. And so he left the church with his family. And do you know what they did? they went into a little living room small group that was led by a false shepherd who had come to, to Bloomington to spread the good news of God's grace. And I thought a lot about that man because I had affection for him. So I thought about him actually for years. And I just kept flipping it around in my brain. What on earth? What was going on there? How could we end up where a confession of sin is a contradiction of dependence on Jesus Christ? And then I realized that faith was a work. I realized that grace was a mantra. I realized that If grace is a a mantra in such a way that you will not ever cling to Jesus Christ, but rather to your mantra of grace, then anything that causes you to see your desperate need for Jesus 
has the potential of being like, you know, a, you know, a six by six thrown underneath the steel wheel of a boxcar. And it just can derail everything. And so when the Apostle Paul says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, in case you missed it, and he says, not by works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Brothers and sisters, we have to realize that the works of the law are always changing, like a chameleon. There's unending permutations of works of the law. They change generation after generation after generation after generation. At about the time we realize that circumcision doesn't save us, then we think that indulgences and buying them and, you know, the whole apparatus of the seven sacraments saves us. And then what do we do? Then we come up with prayers to receive Jesus. And that saves you. And we will do anything we can to avoid simply clinging to Jesus and seeing that we have no righteousness to bring to him. The only righteousness is Jesus Christ. He has the only righteousness. And so if we, pray, if we trust in the sinner's prayer, if we're parents that want to trust in the daily vacation Bible school prayer to receive Jesus or, or Awana, whatever it is, we're going to be resistant to the preaching of God's law because we're going to see that as threatening our faith. We're going to be resistant to prayers of confession. We're going to be resistant to humbling ourselves before our wives and husbands and asking for their forgiveness. We are going to be superficial. We will not love Bloomington until Bloomington loves us. And if they're persecuting us by gum, they ain't going to get love from us. You see this? Because why? Because we have to constantly reassure ourselves that we live in grace, that we have faith, that we're clean. And we'll be resistant to anything that shows us our dirt. Anything that causes us to cling to Jesus. <laughs> The Apostle Paul, and because he wrote it, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit says that by the works of the law, no man is saved. You are not saved. And by the way, can we just put it to rest? Circumcision was never about the flesh. Romans makes it very clear that when circumcision was the sacrament, it was by faith. And if circumcision was of the flesh, so is baptism, because it gets you wet. And baptism doesn't save. Circumcision doesn't save. Baptism doesn't save. The Lord's Supper does not save. Even if you take it every week, 
like Calvin said we were supposed to do, even if your children take it at two years old, like Calvin would have done if he'd had faith. The sacraments don't save you. And so does that mean that circumcision was meaningless? No. Does that mean that baptism is meaningless? Does that mean that the Lord's Supper is meaningless? No. <laughs> but remember, circumcision was called by the Apostle Paul what? By the works of the law. But it was a sa Baptism and the Lord's Supper are works of the law. <laughs> we are saved by Jesus. We are saved by his righteousness. We are saved by his death. We are saved by his resurrection. Our faith is not in peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Our faith is in Jesus. And if your faith is something that's weaned you from desperation as you cling to him, then you don't have faith, not the faith of Scripture. If your faith is resistant to conviction of sin in your own heart, that's not the faith of Scripture. That's not the Reformation. So listen, give yourself to repentance. Because through repentance comes more clinging to Jesus. And that's what we need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you feed us from it. We thank you for the Apostle Paul not taking the privileges of his Jewishness and his Roman citizenship and having been the student of Gamaliel and being a Pharisee of Pharisees, we thank you that he said, I count it all as dung, as, as, as uh, muck. Father, help us. Would you please help us to give ourselves to repentance day by day so that Christ might become more precious to us day by day. We pray in Jesus' name.